Hello, my friends. Welcome to the FBCC Chapel Podcast. The Bible says in Psalms how God's Word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And so, it is our prayer that as you listen, you be refreshed, challenged, and encouraged to be a servant for the Master. And now for today's chapel message. Well, good morning, happy students. I am, at least three of you are happy students. I'm glad that you guys are here today. I see, at least as far as I know, four Easterners here. Do we have anybody from the Promised Land of West? Any Westerners in here? Where, where, where are you from? What part of BC? Okay, and you? Well, amen. Well, who else we got from the West? Yes, sir? Okay. All right, so far we got people that are kind of the Promised Land. Vancouver doesn't count. What about you? Vancouver? Anyone else? Alberta. What part? So, what part? <laughs> Lethbridge. Well, yeah, praise the Lord. We got at least one saved person here in this group today. I was born in Alberta, born in Calgary. My dad was a cowboy, so we were nomadic. We moved 14 times in seven different years. Uh, and then when I was eight, we moved to southern British Columbia, but not the Vancouver part of B.C., the interior part of B.C. in the mountains. And so when I was 16, I got saved. My parents were not Christians. I was invited to church by Richard Allen. He now pastors up in, in northern British Columbia. And I always wanted to be a firefighter. That was my dream from about 14 or 15 years old. So when I was 16, I joined the fire department as an underage firefighter and had gotten my training to then fight forest fires the summer I graduated high school. I had signed up to go to forestry school, and then I was going to go to firefighting academy afterwards. And my high school job was a dishwasher at a fancy restaurant. So a couple weeks before I graduated high school, Pastor Tom Klein out of Castlegar Baptist Church, he came to me and says, Ryan, would you ever consider going to Bible college? And I said, absolutely not. That's not something we're about to do. And he said, I want you to pray about it. And I said, no, we're we're not, we're not praying about that one. And so when I graduated high school, because my parents were Christians, and I had one Christian friend, I did good for a while, and then bad for a while, and then good for a while, kind of a roller coaster. And I was getting ready to go fight forest fires, and because the whole Pacific Northwest was on fire, everyone on my crew got called except for me. And so I'm sitting at home, washing dishes in my summer job, becoming frustrated, not understanding why every single person got the call, and I'm stuck at home. I see now that's God's hand of providence. One night, probably beginning of August, I came under incredible conviction, and so the need to surrender. So my break, I had called Pastor Klein. I said, all right, I give in. I'll go to Bible college. I'll do it. Now, I had gone to my mom the next day. I said, Mom, what do you think about me going to Bible college? And she said, absolutely not. My parents were not Christians, very against religion in any kind. And so I went and I did all the paperwork behind her back. And then two weeks before I was supposed to go, I sat my mom down and said, Mom, I'm not going to forestry school. I'm not going to Bible. I'm not going to be a firefighter. I'm going to Bible college. And mom said, the heck you are, though she did not say heck. And I said, I am. And so I got out a map, figured out where Indiana was, and drove three days to get there. Now, Pastor Klein had recommended that we go to 
a Bible college in Indiana, I'd never heard of Faithway. I'd never heard of West Coast. I'd never heard of any of those. As far as I knew, there was one school in the entire universe, and it just happened to be in Greenwood, Indiana. And so I went. After my second year there, I met my wife in God's providence. She was a dual citizen already. And because I was Canadian, I had to work on campus, couldn't work outside, so I was in the kitchen. And the cook just happened to be this attractive lady's grandmother. And so when you get in with grandma, you can get in with the family. And so I met Jacinda, and I worked at a homeless shelter in the youth department for three and a half years with all the inner city teenagers. Then I was a youth pastor for two and a half years. And then when I was 24, a little tiny, super desperate church in Nova Scotia said, we are looking for anybody with a pulse. Would you come up? And at that point, I had thought about planting a church outside of Calgary in the Okotoks area. Actually, I lived in Lethbridge three different times. Where's our Alberta guy? Yeah, lived in Lethbridge three different times. My grandparents uh, retired there. And instead of that, God changed our minds, and we went to Nova Scotia. I had never been east of Saskatchewan until 2005. So it was a whole new world. I'm just curious, how many of you, I'm glad you're all here, but how many of you feel God's call in your life, a ministry of some kind. You may don't know what it looks like, but you know you surrendered to whatever God would have you in any capacity. Anyone out there? Okay. So I'm sure you've been told by now, ministry is awesome, and it's terrible, and often awesome and terrible in the, in the same day. It is a complete mix of the good and the bad and the ugly. And so one of the things that we always try to do is find the beauty and the humor in every situation because if you are a pastor, you will be put in some of the craziest, most absurd positions you've ever been in. We've had people come bring drugs to our house. We've had, um, most of my stories are PG-13 or up, so I can't tell them in a public setting, but give me a loan over coffee one day and I'll tell you all the good stuff. When I was 24, on my first funeral, and I'd never done a funeral before, so I was super nervous about it. And so I asked my mentor, Pastor Mark Monty, on what I should do. And he said, I want you to read Psalm 18 at the graveside. But once you get through it, there's one verse you really ought to skip. Because just the way the, the King James is, there's a verse that you don't want to spend time trying to explain it at a graveside, so just skip over it. And so the funeral goes good. We go to the graveside, super nervous. I have my book and my papers, and a big gust of wind comes and takes all my papers and flows them all over the graveyard. And so I have to wait for the funeral directors to go pick up all my stuff. And now I'm really nervous and really not in my head. And so I forgot to skip the verse. So at this graveside with the person going into the ground, I then proclaim for all their family, Psalm 18, verse number five, O God, my soul is in hell, O Lord. Do not do that, my friends. Please take your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel chapter number 12. The Bible is a book of realism. It doesn't gloss over the stories of the weak. In fact, it exposes the weaknesses of all the characters within. We do have Hebrews chapter 11 where we have the hall of faith. But in that, God still uses people in spite of their weakness. We see Moses in there. But Moses got into the homemade hooch and got himself drunk and embarrassed his family. We have Abraham in there. But Abraham became paralyzed by fear and became a liar. We have stories after stories of men and their weakness. 
We have Solomon following his lust instead of God. We have Hezekiah letting pride color his final years. We have Moses dying without seeing the promised land because he let his temper get into the way. One of the sad parts of the experience we have is when we look around after a while, we see people that used to be beside us that are no longer there. You all have stories of people in your youth group that one time were faithful, would sing the hymns of the faith with you, but now have gone on the ways of the world are gone. And in Bible college as well, sometimes people leave every semester, every year, and the next thing you know, they're, they're eyeballs deep into sin. I graduated Bible college 20 years ago this year, and I look back, there was a guy that I went door knocking with, and we did street preaching together. And he became a homosexual. One of my very best friends, he was voted chaplain of our Bible college. He ended up having a, a big church in Phoenix. He decided to have a wife and a girlfriend at the same time. And you can't do that. And so he lost his ministry. And you look around and you see people that at one time were faithful and were shoulder to shoulder in the trench of ministry. And then they fall away. And we ask ourselves, what is going on? When I have friends that are no longer there and people that I ministered with that are now gone, what's, what were they thinking? Now, the sinful actions that you and I or others commit are never a result of simply a rash decision. But they're always a result of the time when you and I get in our hearts, we begin to hold the person of God in contempt. It starts slow in our heart, begins to build and to grow like a root. And we get to the point where we have convinced ourselves that God is actually holding out on us. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for Jesus today. And thank you, Lord, for these students. Thank you that you have put the call of God upon their life. And even if just a year of the Bible certificate, may you use them mightily in their local churches. And Lord, we commit ourselves to you. We are insufficient of these things, and we need you in a desperate way. So, Father, we ask you to make yourself real to us. Speak to us through your word and through the spirit that, above all, you might be glorified. Father, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to see David, one of the most famous stories of the Bible. We're all familiar with it. And David's going to get to a point where God says to him, you have despised me in your heart. And so, despising God, what it looks like is in chapter 12. In verse number 1, the Bible says, The Lord sent Nathan unto David, and he came to him, and he said to him, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. And so a little bit less than a year has passed since the sin with Bathsheba. And in those months, David has not repented. David has not written any psalms. He's in a time of darkness in his life. Psalm 32 says that in that time of sin and stubbornness, he felt like he was dried up. There was no life. There was no vitality. There was no excitement in his life. He was just going through the motions because of unrepented sin. We know that God looked at David's life and saw through all the excuses. In 2 Samuel eleven twenty seven, the Bible says the Lord, the thing, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And you and I, in the delusion of our heart, can fool ourselves, we can fool each other, but we can never fool God. And so, after David is in these times of stubbornness for months, God sends someone. He sends Nathan the prophet. 
And Nathan comes to David and he tells him a story. He gives a parable like Jesus would. And the story starts in verse number two. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds. But the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb, which he had brought and nourished up and grew up together with him and with his children. It did eat of his own meat and drank of his own cup and lay in his bosom. It was unto him as a daughter. Isn't it funny how attached we can get to animals? I was always a big dog person. I always have a big dog. And when I would walk my big dog, nobody ever bothered me. Nobody ever said hi to me. It was just some normal guy and his normal dog. And then my daughter got a little rat dog. And the little rat dog, because she gets cold, has to wear a jacket and sometimes booties. And so now when I have to walk my rat dog out, everybody stops to talk to me. They're like, look at the nice gay guy with his little gay dog. They're always stopping to talk to me with my little rat dog. And originally I did not like the rat dog, but now I love the rat dog. I've become quite attached to my rat dog. It's interesting on how pets can have such a profound effect on us. When my big dog died, I cried like a little girl. I miss my big dog. And so here we have a family of poor men. They have a, a pet sheep. Likely they called him Fluffy because what else would you call a pet sheep? And here we see the rich man then comes. He has a buddy into town, verse 4. And he's spared to take of his own flock, of his own herd, to dress for the wayfaring man that was come unto him. But he took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was come to him. And so the rich man did not want to use his own sheep. So he stole Fluffy from the poor man. He butchered Fluffy and he fed Fluffy to a traveling buddy of his own. Verse number five. David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord liveth, the man that has done this thing shall surely die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing, because he had no pity. So David, sitting on his throne, hears the story of this man that did this thing, and he becomes incensed with anger and, and, and justice. He comes upset at the unfairness of this man. And in the anger against this man, notice what David does. He invokes the name of God. He says, as the Lord lives, the man that does this thing shall surely die. As the God of the covenant lives. Notice in your Bible, it's capital L-O-R-D. Of course, you know when we have that, it's talking about God's plain name. I am that I am. I am the self-existent one, the one with no beginning and no end. I am that I am. And so David declares that by God's name, the one who has done this horrendous sin will not escape unpunished. And you and I are watching this story unfold, and we're a little bit like, David, do you, do you hear yourself? Did you see what you're saying right now? Did you forget what you did a month ago, David, or a year ago? You, you stole a woman. You slept with her. You had her husband murdered. You have not repented. You lived in stubbornness for months. And now you have the audacity to call upon God's name as your witness? Seriously, David? Are you not paying any attention to what you're doing? He has become the hypocrite that he hates. He's become Saul. 
And then he declares that this rich man, before he dies, he has to pay back four times the worth of the land that he stole. And in saying this, David is reaching out to the, the Mosaic law, Exodus chapter 22, and saying this is what God says. He has to pay restitution. And again, he has to pay, and then he gets to die because his actions were so selfish. And though David and his pronouncement of judgment is not wrong, his hypocrisy is outstanding. Verse 7. And David said, and I can imagine that old Nathan had his bony finger in his face when he did this, Thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed the king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. Isn't it interesting, because of our deceitful heart, we have an incredible ability to judge other people pretty harshly and give ourselves a free pass. And this is why, by the way, accountability is so important. The church and Christian friends help me see, my wife, help me see what I cannot see on my own. I need help. In verse 8, he continues on. He said, I gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wives into the bosom, and I, I gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if it had been too little, I would moreover have given thee such and such things. Now, if you happen to take notes in your Bible... In verse number 9, it says, Wherefore thou hast despised. You may want to underline that, or arrow it, or star it, or pretty it up somehow. Despise the commandment of the Lord, to do evil in his sight. Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword, hast taken his wife to be thy wife, and hast slain him with the sword of the children of Adam. Now notice this is a, a one-sided conversation. David isn't speaking. David is listening, and Nathan is speaking. Nathan is saying all of it. And in the conversation, Nathan gives the key part of the problem, where, where the whole fiasco started. In verse 10, he's going to say it again. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from thine house, because thou hast, there it is again, despised me, and hast taken the wife of Uriah to be thy wife. And so here we have some movement. It goes from despising the commandment of God to despising God himself. This word is super important. The word means to disesteem or to hold in contempt or to think little of. In Genesis 25, 34 is used of Esau thinking little of his birthright and selling it for a bowl of soup because he was so hungry. He was like my kids that are starving. They're going to die tomorrow if they don't eat right now. It's used in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 4, of Nehemiah and the boys in the eyes of Sanballat, where they were despised in that. It's used in Isaiah 53, verse 3, about the suffering Savior and how he was despised and rejected of men. It's like a sports team. I coached basketball for years. It's like a sports team coming in and looking the other team and thinking, those guys? We're going to play those guys? My son played basketball for West Coast last year, and they played two D1 teams. And when they played California Baptist, Nathaniel said there was four seven-footers on California Baptist. And the tallest kid on the West Coast Baptist Eagles was six foot four, and he didn't play. He sat the bench. 
And so when West Coast came in, California Baptist said, those guys? We're, play we're playing those guys? It's like if you've ever had people pick you for, say, dodgeball. Anybody ever pick last in dodgeball? Any lasters in here? My wife, my wife was picked last. My wife failed grade six gym because she couldn't put the volleyball over the net. She understands what that's like. Have you ever been a teenager and rolled your eyes at your parents because you thought they were saying something dumb? All this is the idea of thinking little of. When you pick last for dodgeball, they can't help us. You disesteem them. You hold them in contempt. God had told David that he was going to give him anything he wanted. He had blessed him. He had given him the kingdom. And then he says through, through Nathan, and if you had been too little, I would have given you more. Now, do you remember the covenant that God had made with David? But what happens is that in our hearts, you and I, in the new covenant, we begin thinking the crazy thoughts that God has somehow held out on us. We became, become involved in idolatry, wanting these desires and these wants more than we want to honor God. And we start living out Jeremiah 17 and, and James chapter 4, and we begin to convince ourselves that God is actually insufficient. This is why people move away from him, because they are so sure that their fulfillment and their happiness and life will just make sense. It's not coming from God in their mind, so they go into the world to find it. They think, I need something out there to make me happy, to be fulfilled, and I just want it. And when that thought begins to enter into our hearts, we begin to hold the person of God in contempt. We have said, maybe not out loud, but definitely in our brains, God, you are not enough anymore. I need something on top of you. I need something in addition to you. There is something more out there. And isn't that the highest insult? My friend that got a girlfriend and a wife at the same time, what was he saying to his wife? You're not enough. I need something more. It's so insulting. It's so wicked. And that's what we do to the Lord when we look at our lives and we look at what he has given us. And he said, you know what, I'm just, I'm just not there anymore. And we'll move away. And here David does some of the worst things we can imagine where he's involved in idolatry and murder and stubbornness. And he gets called on the carpet where Nathan says it's because you have thought little of God in your hearts and you have despised him. All right, well, that's what's going on. How did he get here? Take your Bible, hang it left, go back one chapter, chapter 11. And verse number one, the Bible says, and it came to pass... This is point two, by the way, if you take notes, how we got here. It came to pass after the year was expired, at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent to Joab, that's the general, and his servants with him in all Israel, and he destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David tarried still at Jerusalem. So chapter 10 ends with the armies of Ammon retreating into their city, and chapter 11 starts with a continuation of that battle, and Joab takes the troops, destroys Ammon, and besieges the city. And a siege could take months or sometimes years. And it sets the stage for the rest of the story. And then David, on the anniversary of the initial attack, has, has Ammon attack the city, or has Joab attack the city of Ammon one more time. Verse 2. 
And it came to pass in an evening tide that David arose from off his bed, and he walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. All right, we don't know what she was doing on the roof, but it doesn't really matter. The point is he saw her, and he was tempted. We know that temptation in itself isn't sin. Right, Matthew 4.1, Jesus was tempted to the devil. But what we do not do with temptation is we do not dwell on it. What happens is that when we begin to think of the temptation, we roll over in our minds, we play it up bigger and better than what it really is, and then in that comes that delusion where we say, God is holding out on me. And what I really want, what I really think I need for happiness, God won't let me have. So we're going to ignore God's commandment, go for it anyway, and when we get to that point, we end up worshiping ourselves rather than God, and we get tunnel vision, and we become like a horse with the blinders on where, where we don't see any of the warning signs. We've all had friends do something stupid, or maybe you did something stupid, and then afterwards you said, how could I have been so stupid? And the reason was, because when we get our hearts set on sin, we can't see anything else because we're in tunnel vision, and it's the only thing that we're focusing on. In verse 3, this is great in its absurdity. David sent and inquired after the woman. David says, hubba hubba, who's that? And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? I want us to think about this for a sec. David sees this woman. He gets all googly-eyed after her. He dwells on it by asking who she is, he did not just leave it alone. Now, David, at this time, he's already in his 50s. He has five wives already. And now he sees a girl half his age, and he becomes nothing more than a creepy old man, guilty of being a peeping Tom. So he sends his servant, tell me who that one is. And I want you to notice the response to the servant. It's a rhetorical question because everyone already knew who she was. Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam? That's not a random name. The wife of Uriah, the Hittite? Not a random name. <clears throat> now, when David found out who she was, because he had convinced himself that God was holding out on him, and that these other five wives, man, they nag too much, and they're annoying, and they got bad breath, and all the rest. But this one was the one I want, because that's all he could focus on. He'd already purposed in his heart to take her. Matthew 5, 28 reminds us that whosoever looks on a woman to lust after her commits adultery with already in her heart. Now, because he'd already purposed in his heart to sin, at this point, because he has the blinders on, he does not care what boundaries he crosses. And when you and I replay the sin that we think will make us happy over and over again in our minds, the boundaries disappear and the red flags become green flags. Now, look at these red flags. The servant says, this is Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam. Iliam is not a farmer. Iliam is one of the mighty men of David. He's like the SEAL Team 6 of David's army. And Bathsheba was his daughter. Public service announcement, if your father-in-law can snap your neck, don't mess with his daughter. And then the next one is Uriah. 
Uriah was also one of the mighty men, also on the SEAL teams. And Bathsheba was his wife. And so the servant says, uh, Boss, you do realize that her dad and her husband, like they're on the Osama bin Laden team. You, you, you know that, right? And then on top of that, her grandpa was Ahithophel. And Ahithophel was one of the trusted advisors of the kingdom. 2 Samuel 16.23 says, Asking Ahithophel was like asking God he was that wise. As an aside, later on when Absalom rebelled, Ahithophel had given advice on how to kill David because he wanted to kill the man who had destroyed his family. And so David says, who's that? And the servant says, hold on, boss. Her dad is a mighty man. Her husband is a mighty man. And her grandpa is on your council of advisors. You sure you want to do this? But when we convince ourselves that God is holding out on us, we play it in our mind again and again and again, all the boundaries disappear. And I don't see any of that. In verse 4, David sent his messengers, and he took her, and she came in unto him, and he lay with her. For she was purified from her uncleanness, and she returned unto her house. And so despite all the red flags, and there's a lot of them, David has a one-night stand and then sends her home. He sends her home and doesn't follow up for nine months. A real sweetheart, David is at this point in his life. And then verse 5 says, The woman conceives and sent and told David, saying, I am with child. For the first time in David's life, he's going to go up against God he's going to lose. He's going to go up against God and persist because he's convinced himself that God is not enough and there's something else out there and maybe if that's the one, it'll do it for me. And it's crazy when you and I think about it detached, obviously that's not going to work, but sin and pride do that to you. David knew Goliath couldn't sin against God and win, but somehow David thinks he can sin against God and wins. And we do the exact same thing. All because we get to the point where we become discontented in our Christian life. And we look out at something shiny out there and we think, you know what, life will be a whole lot better if I can just have that. It's a lifestyle, it's a thing, it's a person, it's just that. And it never works. Well, we think it works because we're deceived. In verse 27 of chapter 11, it says, When the morning was past, David sent and fetched her to his house, and she became his wife. So he did marry her. What a nice guy. She bare him a son. But the thing that David had done had displeased the Lord. It's important for you and I to continually ask ourselves, what is my heart like? What are the things that I, that I think I want? What have I placed above my desire of God that I've convinced myself that if I can just have this, then life will be good? In my own life, have I been guilty or do I do now? Though there's warning signs and there's red flags, do I just rush past all of those? 
because I'm so sure it'll bring me happiness. I have been involved in Forestland Bible Camp in Nova Scotia for 20 years. I've seen so many teenagers that are involved and they sing or they're on staff and then they mailed in for something stupid. I've seen so many friends in ministry that start out strong. They're those annoying people that can do everything well. They can sing and they can preach and they can play the piano and they're attractive and they have good teeth. They have all the annoying things out there and yet they mailed in for something stupid. We get the blinders on. And so happy students, we ask that we would take a look at our own hearts and will we come to the conviction that Jesus is enough and that will we come to the conviction that I'm going to listen to the friends that love me when they say, listen, that, that's stupid. Don't do that. And listen to the red flags and listen to the warning signs because it will never work out. Whenever we go against God, we will always lose because Jesus is always enough. Even now it's easy for us to despise God in our hearts, to look at him as little or not enough. But he's always enough. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask these gentlemen to come forward and we can close. Father, we thank you for your grace. And as the semester is ending and we're looking forward to a break and all the things that go on, and as these happy students go back to their homes, there's going to be a variety of temptations, happens here and there and everywhere. The little whisper in our ear that there's just something you need to add to my faith in Christ. He's not enough. He's holding out on you. There's more out there. When we purpose in our heart to sin, we ignore all the warning signs. Father, we ask you to help keep us from that. That you would keep our hearts soft and tender that we'd seek you above all. Lord, we are a needy people. In Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us on today's Chapel Podcast. We hope it was an encouragement and a help to you. If you have any questions or are interested in knowing more about our college, feel free to contact us through our website, fbccanada.org, or on any of our social media platforms. And as always, may Christ be lifted up, God be glorified, and servants be trained for the master's plan. Thank you again for listening. Have a wonderful day.